Hi, and welcome to The Vote Her podcast, because when you vote, great things can happen. I'm Mara Davis, media maven, talent booker, political enthusiast, and really happy to be back with my ladies after a little hiatus. I am Terry Anulowitz, and I am a state representative here in Georgia, and I am almost cut up on my sleep from session ending about two weeks ago. Yeah, and this is uh, Jen Jordan, former state senator, and that's why I haven't had to catch up on my sleep. So uh, excited to hear what Terry has to say about um, all the ups and downs during a general, the General Assembly session this year. Well, there's so much to cover, and just so you know, let's, let's get get through our logistics. Uh, Jen is, is at her home studio uh, while Terry and I are together, so we're going to make this work, and we're excited about it. First, the biggest story that I really want to go to you first, Jen, is about this Mifepristone ruling, a Texas judge, uh, is sort of like making a lot of waves, and there doesn't seem to be any answers up about it. What happens next? What's going on? Yeah, I mean, this is, this is completely new territory. And for those of you who haven't been watching the last few years, um, Texas is in the Fifth Circuit. And the Fifth Circuit has become basically the Wild West um, for, and I don't even want to say for, for people pushing conservative causes because it, it goes way, way further than that. And so I'd like to say that the Fifth Circuit really um, is kind of become a radical um, appellate circuit. And so you, you have everybody filing um, cases in Texas because they know that what the Fifth Circuit and the district courts under it will do is, is kind of rule in their favor. And so just to go back to, this is crazy, like basically telling the FDA or, or enjoining the FDA um, from being able to um, approve drugs that they've approved per, per kind of congressional guidance and, and in, you know, laws that were passed by Congress and the legislative branch. And you have this district court that basically has come in and said, nope, you know, you can't do this, FDA. This is beyond your power, and I'm going to shut you down. And the Fifth Circuit basically has backed them up to this up to this point, and it really is a showdown between two branches of government. And everybody should be really, really concerned. And why do you think there's been no comment from Governor Kemp and Attorney General Chris Carr? Well, because we know that politically. This is really a tinderbox for Republicans, and it, it's almost like they can't even believe their good luck, right? They've installed all of these, I'm going to just say it, they're crazy judges, right? They've installed these crazy judges um, who aren't following established law or precedent, right? And they're doing it all with an aim toward pushing some kind of ideological, um, you know, kind of in some ideological lane. And that's actually the opposite of what courts are supposed to do, right? Courts are supposed to be um, the folks who hold the line, who say, okay, y'all, you can't do this. We know that, you know, people feel very strongly around these issues, um, but there are laws, there are regulations, there are the branches of government, there's federalism, right? All of these things. 
And right now in Texas, none of that really seems to matter. And for those of you who are like, what are y'all even talking about? So with respect to methoprestone, it's not like another name. You know, you have to um, guess, you know, in terms of what what, what is the criteria? You know, all things pop culture. What is the um, where you have to uh, guess the name of the little troll elf and you, you know, get to... Yeah, Rumpelstiltskin. <laughs> oh, yes, the, that pop culture from the 16th right. century. <laughs> you know, whatever. I couldn't, think, I, I couldn't think of the guy's name, right? And um, But, you know, that's what it sounds like. So everybody's like, what the heck is this big thing about? Well, basically, mifepristine is, is, is a drug that is used. Um, it's medication abortions, which is really the prevalent choice now, especially for early ones, right? And that was the whole point that, you, you, I mean... Any woman I know, if she were going to have to get an abortion, um, would want to do it as early as possible. And it, really, medication abortions are the way to go because you don't have to go into a surgery center. It doesn't have to be surgical. Um, and it just effectively causes a miscarriage. Um, but even apart from abortions, it really is used for, for medical reasons once women are having miscarriages. Um, to help complete the process, because if you don't complete the process, then women can get infections, um, and ultimately they can die from that. And so it's one of those things where, you know, this court is way, way over, you know, kind of the line, but it's almost become the norm, and that's what's really, really scary. Because one of the questions I have about this is with this judge's interpretation, because he... and I have not read the decision, and I am not a lawyer. But my my understanding of his of his decision is that it talks about the safety issues. And what what I've read from other folks, and and you know, I have a little bit of a professional background in the pharmaceutical industry. But by his standard, there's a whole raft of medicines that now no longer anyone should no, people shouldn't be able to take because of safety concerns. Is that accurate? You're exactly right. Yeah. That, that's exactly, and that's the problem. It's not even he he wasn't even rolling it around in some kind of abortion language, right? Um, But it's almost worse because basically he's saying that the FDA did not have the ability to approve this because this medication is not safe. And he kind of laid out why he thought it wasn't safe. But the problem is, is that A, what he cited was incomplete at best and incorrect. Um, But it's one of those things where there is a incredibly rigorous process in terms of any kind of medication, you know, through in terms of, of the safety and propriety of it through the FDA. And we really do want pharmaceutical companies pushing in terms of research and development, right? We right. want that new cancer drug. We want that new Alzheimer's drug, whatever it is. And so this is the kind of thing and the kind of action that if you say that the FDA can't do that, or even now you, you just have judges kind of ad hoc saying, well, we don't think that they did it the right way. Um, Can you imagine that as a pharmaceutical company? Am I going to even, am I even going to go there? No, no, that's the thing. It's chilling. It's kind of having this really chilling effect in terms of research and development, which just has an incredible impact on, you know, uh, medical progress. Well, that's so, yeah, and that's twofold, really. It has that chilling impact on research, and it's a disincentive for these companies to try to, find new therapies and new breakthroughs and new, new, you know, 
things that are maybe less invasive for patients, things that are easier for patients, things that are going to be ultimately cheaper for patients. But the other thing I think it has a chilling effect on, again, it's, it, this, is, this goes back to the erosion of public trust in science. And try, when you're undermining the FDA, when you're saying their process isn't rigorous, when it is indeed rigorous, when these medicines are indeed safe, and it's, it's just like folks trying to undermine confidence in vaccines. It's this erosion of faith and confidence in science and in medicine and in our medical establishment. And that is, is, is very damaging. Well, in our institutions, right? Yeah. And, and that kind of goes hand in hand. What COVID did you know, in terms of the messaging coming out of, and like I said, I, I don't even like to say, but I guess it is Republicans now. I mean, I used to, to to try to differentiate between kind of Trump Republicans and then, you know, kind of business or, or country club Republicans or chamber of commerce Republicans. But really now, if you're a Republican, you're, you got to own it. You're a Trump Republican at this point, because that that is what the brand is. And, and this is the result of kind of the governance for the last few years. But so medical science and respect and um, and really believing in medical institutions went hand in hand with, with really the governmental institutions because of COVID. And so when you had Trump trying to undermine effectively both, right, or one or the other, um, it, it has impacted, I mean, it, it's just devastated the medical profession in terms of, of kind of the trust factor with people just generally in the public. I want to ask about this because I actually got this text today, Jen, and I, I, I want to know what you think about it. Okay. Um, hey, I have a friend whose son who thinks his girlfriend is pregnant. They are in high school. The mom of the girl is super religious. She's taking a pregnancy test today, but if so, what are her options? I thought you'd be a good person to ask. Can she get the abortion pill anywhere without her mother's consent? I don't think so. I mean, and Terry, we'd have to go back and look at it, but I believe that if you are, um, and, and have to go back specifically and look at the statutory language, I've always thought about it in terms of a minor girl, right? right? Um, it, there is something called a judicial uh, bypass, right. which means if, if a young woman wants to have an abortion, um, and her parents are not in favor, or if there is another reason why the caretaker or the guardian is not in favor that if they knew about it, the girl would be put in danger, right? That you can go to a judge and basically request emergency um, relief, allowing you to, to go, go and get an abortion. And the problem in terms of what you're dealing with here is you've got the six week ban, right? That's right. So right. That's right. So if, it's right. She's even popping up. And she's a teenager, so it's not like she's been really paying attention well, in if, terms of her cycles are even regular. Like so, so if she is pregnant, my guess is she's past six weeks, and that judicial bypass bypass process would not even be available to her at that point. So it, it is it is one of those things where, you know, especially if her mother, the parent, um, is not on board, then you know. I don't think there are any options. Let me ask you this. So another friend of mine, and it, and I know a couple of people who have been buying Mifepristone uh, from India. And as some blue states have been stocking up on having this on hand, I know a lot of women that are buying them for their daughters as well overseas. Um, so 
I, how is, would this even be policed? I mean, again, we haven't really addressed what no one can seem to get a comment from Governor Camp or Chris Carr on their feelings about this and how this would be policed. So what do you make of all of that? You, you can't police it. I mean, that's what's crazy. I mean, that, really what they're trying to do is to stop it by the manufacturers, by the people who would distribute and sell, right? They, they want to, and, and that's why cutting it off kind of at this FDA level, you know, really trying to chill um, any effort to, to go around the red states, like you were talking about, whether the blue states are stockpiling or whatever. This really is an effort to, you know, they're pushing up to try to stop it, and now they're, they're trying to push down too. The problem in terms of getting this from India or anywhere else it's the reason we have the FDA in the first place, right? right? Because we we have no control over those drugs, how they're made, the process. Are they safe? We, we don't know. And, and we also know that there are real issues in terms of adulteration of drugs. Um, I mean, heck, just even if you think about fentanyl, right? Like, it's a real problem when you are taking drugs from another country because you just have no clue, which is why the FDA has always played such an incredibly important role in this country. And there have been a lot of times where drugs have been okayed in other countries um, and the FDA, you know, just wasn't there yet and had not got to the point where they felt comfortable, um, you know, offering drugs or saying drugs were okay that had been used widely in Europe, you know, for, for a long time. So it is a real problem because that may be the only choice some people have. Um, but that definitely, if there is another way, I, I would not be ordering um, drugs from different countries. I mean, people are people are doing it. I mean, it's like there's like a last resort kind of thing. I mean, I think it's just we're all getting to the point where it's so scary now. And obviously, so w- w- when it comes to like getting to the Supreme Court, does this mean they'll hear it in this session? It, like an emergency order? Ex- can you guys explain that? I mean, there is news that, you know, in the... The AJC posted a story, and again, we're recording this on, you know, this is Friday a little bit after 3 p.m., but there was a story about an hour ago that the Supreme, the Department of Justice has asked the Supreme Court to do some kind of a, make a decision on, 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 on whether or not this drug is still legal in the United States. Well, I think at a minimum, what you want to do is you want the Supreme Court to say, hey, let's just keep the status quo, right? Um, until we can make a decision. I mean, that is that is really the reasonable thing because this has such, if this were allowed to stand, it would have just such incredible impact across the board. And and the issues aren't even decided. This is just a random district court in Texas, right? right? And so it, it's one of those things where the reasonable and usual way this would proceed is that you, the, the Supreme Court would say, you know what, we are going to, we're going to lift this injunction until we have the ability to, to decide this and determine if it's correct or not. Um, but it was interesting because the Department of Justice, Biden's Department of Justice, right, because this is the executive branch, right. uh, a lot of people were, were telling Biden just to ignore this decision. And he was like, you can't you do, can't that, do that, right? Yeah. You can't ignore another, you know, 
another part of government. You can't, you know, we do not want that to become the norm because no. then you really are the wild, wild west and the rule of law doesn't mean anything. But yeah, we, we don't want to set a precedent of presidents ignoring the judicial branch. No, even though that's happened uh, in the past. It's happened in the past. <laughs> yeah, the but, you know, but yeah, 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 with the former. Uh, well, yeah. Yeah. well, this is so, um, and, and we have a bunch of other things we want to get to, but I, I'm curious from both of you, as far as like, okay, so we're going to have to wait and see what happens. And and it is just horrific because women and girls will, will suffer because of this. And already, just based on one text I got from a friend today, the anxiety this is causing like immediately. Um, but here we are. We just saw the Supreme Court judge that was not was elected in Wisconsin mm-hmm. and the midterm elections where uh, choice and abortion issues is is a losing one for Republicans. And this just, Republicans can't seem to get their story straight where it's like they thought, all right, the dog caught the car, uh, let the states decide, and now we have this other level of it. From, from a political standpoint, how you see even at the Georgia State House, like where are Republicans going to be with this issue now? I'll start with you, Terry. So from a political, it's interesting because from a political standpoint, I think Republicans who locked down on this issue are really digging themselves into a hole because we know that the general populace, and when you do the polling, you know, that judge in, in, in Wisconsin, she won by like 11% of the vote. Like it was not a slim margin at all. And we know that people going to the polls, abortion was one of the motivating issues that, you know, and, and reproductive freedom was one of the motivating issues. And we know how the polling is, you know, we know how it is in Georgia. We know that we saw in this in this legislative session there weren't any abortion bills that were talked about and pl- plenty were dropped and because and we got emails from like you need to hear about this bill and you know, whether it was personhood whether it was completely you know making abortion illegal that legislation was there and there was absolutely no appetite from the republican majority to move it because i think that they recognize that it is not a conversation they want to be and i i i've i've seen you know republican pundits, you know, talk about how, or some of many whom are former Republican pundits, you know, talk about how DeSantis has really, has really stepped in it for his presidential hopes by, by passing that ban in, or signing that ban in Florida this week. And I think they're right. Like, I think, I think, I think that politically it is something that Republicans should probably be careful of because this is not a popular thing. Now, from a policy standpoint, what's horrible is that the consequences of, of these policies, though, are that you have very vulnerable people, women, girls, who are now going to be in jeopardy. And they're, they're going to be in jeopardy for a variety of reasons because they're going to do what women have always done, regardless of whether or not, abor- you know, when abortion is legal or illegal, they're going to find a way to terminate these pregnancies. And we're not providing safe avenues for that. And that is a real failing on the part of our, of our public health institutions that we are now not able to, that we're not able to offer these vulnerable people, whether they, you know, for whatever reason they want to terminate their pregnancy, they no longer have a path to do that. And that is a policy failing. Jen? Look, I think, I mean, having been through an election year where, in an election where abortion was talked about as one of the things, right? I think what we saw in Washington and then what we saw in, um, oh, was it Missouri? Which state was it that um, everybody came out? I think it was Missouri. Kansas. Kansas. Or Kansas, yeah. So the deal is, I think that if abortion is the issue, right, if abortion is on the ballot, 
Absolutely. I think it gets a little bit muddled um, in a regular kind of year when it's like abortion plus everything else, right? And, you know, that is going to be the thing that Democrats are going to have to grapple with, which is, okay, we have to be talking about, we, we absolutely have to be talking about other things, right? Solutions, like how are we going to make people's lives better? And that's why it, it was hard even for me as a candidate, because I knew that the abortion issue was the issue that pushed people. But to be quite frank, that isn't really what I wanted to talk about. I wanted to talk about issues. I wanted to talk about what I was going to do if elected and how I was going to make people's lives better. And and so it's very difficult while we know it's a winning political issue. Um, it's harder when you're really somebody or you, you have candidates who want to talk about policy and, and want to talk about things um, separate and apart from, you know, talk about that as an issue, but also talk about the other ways you want to make people's lives better. So that's that's the that's the issue for, for Democrats. Well, I kind of think, and that was what was interesting there in Wisconsin, is that that candidate pretty much leaned into abortion and abortion mm-hmm. only mm-hmm. for that. And, I, you know, I see as just this is an issue that really, really resonates. And I wonder if the plan for 2024 is to maybe flip that to really get in people's feet. You know, that's, I think there's going to be some, you know, real strategy meetings on that. And we're going to have to keep our eye on that. Okay, let's move on to the next thing. And I'll go right back to you, Jen. This Clarence Thomas stuff. So uh, th- there's been so much reporting on Clarence Thomas on his shady business um, with a, you know, a billionaire guy, uh, Harlan Crow, who is someone who is funding vacations and now apparently uh, paying for his mother's home in Savannah. And there's been all this stuff that's coming out. And it just doesn't even seem to have a ripple effect for him. I mean, will he have any consequences? What do you think? He should. I mean, it's absolutely aberrant. I mean, in terms of this Harlan Crow guy, whatever. I mean, first of all, the guy is some kind of aficionado of Nazi memorabilia. I mean, and that that alone should get people's attention. But, you know, he's going on all of these, um, you know, these really crazy expensive vacations with this guy who has issues before the court as almost all billionaires do. And even apart from that, now what we know, and this is really the bad, bad in terms of the law, because this is this is effectively breaking campaign finance laws. And and just so folks know, whenever there is, whenever you, your, your, your real estate kind of dealings, that's part of what you are supposed to disclose. And here what we have is this gentleman, this billionaire, not only buying up, you know, his mom's house, um, but also buying other houses on the block for much less, right? So you you already know that it wasn't fair market value. And then, you know, the ProPublica reporting seems to indicate also that his mother still lives there. Unbelievable. Right, right. So you've got a situation where this is really feeling like a a little quid pro quo ish, but he, let's say there's not a quid pro quo. At the end of the day, it wasn't disclosed, and people may say, "Ah, oh, what's the biggie?" Well, why do you think that um, Michael Cohen spent time in jail? That's right. Because 
Stormy Daniels payment was not disclosed appropriately. And so, you know, when you have a, a law that has been broken, I mean, that is even much more significant than even just the, the ickiness of, of Clarence Thomas, you know, palling around with this billionaire with, you know, swastikas everywhere, you know, put that to the side. I mean, there's a real issue in terms of whether or not he broke the law and, and will he be held accountable? Well, what's interesting about the Harlan Crow, it's funny, I was listening to an interview with um conservative. He's a conservative writer. I'm sure you, both of you ladies know who David French is. And a lot of these conservative guys, him and I saw Jonah Goldberg, who's another conservative writer, and they're not defending Thomas. They think that this is shady and not right. And and as French pointed out in this interview, he was like, look, imagine if Sonia Sotomayor was on a boat exactly. with um, George Soros. Exactly. Okay, like at, people's heads would be on fire. But they're defending this guy, Harlan Crow. And they're like, well, he has the Nazi memorabilia, but like he has a lot of other stuff too. And he's a good guy. And uh, I... I just, and people have seized on the fact that he's, like, I'm sorry. If you have a co- signed copy of Mein Kampf. That's super weird. <laughs> That's not That's, a normal thing that normal people have. Does, like, Fox News doesn't even mention this. It's just, like, I saw, oh, my gosh, I saw Kelly Leffler tweeting about how great Clarence Thomas was, like, a Clarence Thomas quote. They seem to be in, like, a denial zone. I mean, it's... it's well, think, think about it. Sorry, Terry, but think uh, about it if you're Kelly Leffler. I mean, she, you know, she may be buddies with, with Harlan as well. But, yes, she but probably apart is. from that, they're, I mean, they're, are they billionaires yet? They, they're probably billionaires, right? Probably. And I so think that's a safe point, guess. They have interest in front of the Supreme Court. What do you think she's going to do? My buddy Clarence. I mean, oh yeah, he's great. Well, no, duh. It's one of those things where you have these people, we have so much concentrated wealth, and and these disputes go up to the Supreme Court, and the people with the wealth um, have the ability, you know, really not only to get access, but then, of course, you know, now we're seeing that there's real money um, that's been thrown around. And, And Harlan could be... You know, the Dalai Lama, for all I care, right? Let's take away the fact that he is super weird and sketch in terms of what he likes to collect. Let's say he's the best person ever. Who he is in terms of all that has nothing to do with the fact that Clarence Thomas has broken the law. Look, uh, George Cheedy, a guest and friend of this show, um, he sent out a tweet that said, like, yeah, he should be, but, like, because... There's, you know, it's a split Senate. He'll he'll never be impeached, ever. I think that's probably accurate, right? They're yeah. not going to do anything. Well, and and that's and that's the other problem too. Again, this is resulting in now an erosion of of trust in the Supreme Court. I mean, it's, but but hey, we're already there, and then, yeah. But let's talk about it. I would rather there be an effort. Because you get a little discovery then. That's yeah. true. And my That's guess true. is that this is just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, this literally is ProPublica right. reporting. I mean, the folks who who really are just trying to do their best in terms of the public and kind of a nonprofit, it's not like they have all the resources in the world to do this. So you can imagine, if you think about Jenny Thomas and all the shady stuff in terms of you know, January 6th, and you talk about all the money and all, all of these crazy things, I think that this is, is just the tip and that if anybody 
actually started to dig around, that um, there'd be a lot more there, you know, that, and, and I'm not sure that, that people could turn and say that that's okay. Just the tip. Uh, that's Agreed. what they've been saying. Um, I've, I've seen that saying that they're still doing reporting on this. So, I mean, to me, the wife is just a nightmare. All of it's a nightmare. And ever since, you know, we know he's a sexual harasser. We know we believe Anita Hill. Um, it's 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 uh, so well, much. Look, and even if, let's take impeachment off the table, right? He could still be prosecuted. Right, that, yeah. That's, that's the way it is. There's no rule that says a sitting Supreme Court justice can't be indicted. No. I mean, and, it's and, never yeah. happened to my mind. And but I look, think- if, it may need to happen, especially if our other branches of government aren't working. Well, one thing I would think, too, is that what ProPublica what Pro has done is they have now opened this Pandora's box. And I think that there are going to be a lot of journalists with multiple levels of funding, I think, digging into this now. I mean, I imagine there's going to be all kinds of requests from, <laughs> whether it's a Chatham County open records request, whether yeah. it's the tax commissioner. I mean, there are all kinds of ways to dig into this. And I think that people are going to. And I think that the, you know, the analogy of Sotomayor and Soros is absolutely right. I mean, they would be losing their ever-loving minds if anything like that happened because it is so, it's so questionable. It's so sketchy. It's so unethical. And so, yeah, you got you, like, this guy owns the it's house where his mother wrong. lives. It's yeah. Wrong. yeah, it is. It's, 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 yeah. It, it. And right. those people in Savannah are going to talk. I mean, there's oh, probably, you know, you it. know they, the, you, you, you know they are. If they talked about Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, you know they're going to talk about they're this. They're going to talk. Yes. And listen, it all comes back to Georgia. Okay. Um, another thing that happened while we were on our hiatus was, of course, uh, Alvin Bragg, uh, the district attorney in New York, and the whole Trump thing. And we all watched. Did you all watch as that was going on, as he was being arraigned? Uh, Everybody's yeah, quiet. Trying. Oh, go ahead. I mean, trying to... <laughs> there wasn't anything to see. Nobody, everybody's like, we're trying to figure out what's going on. We know he looks angry, we're told. Yes. I mean, that's about as good as the, it got. The motorcade was smaller than expected. <laughs> Well, um, it's like crazy. Nobody really cares that he's driving here. Yeah. Well, no doubt. Like at some point, <laughs> I think everybody's just over it. Well, uh, I, so I was watching it. And first of all, I felt like I was so on the money because I had flown to my mom's and I was at the Palm Beach airport and literally the Trump plane was right there when, oh I, my when I landed and I was all excited. Um, but I couldn't see shit really. I'm, so it doesn't matter. But I did watch it, and a lot of people have said that this case is sort of, compared to the other ones, is, um, and I'll use the words as, as, as someone I know who's called it weak sauce. Who said that? I don't know, but I like to call it weak tea. I mean, <laughs> um, it is, I, I kept hoping, right, that there was going to be something more there. And look, it, it is, it, it is what they allege. It's. It is illegal, but there are some questionable things in terms of how they bootstrapped kind of the, the federal um, violations of law with the with the business stuff. It just seems like a reach, especially when you're you know you're going to have the glare um, of the media and the public upon you like that, and in all of the extra costs associated with having to pursue a case like that against Trump. I mean, think about all the security issues and, 
you know, media issues and the poor judge who's hearing it. I mean, he's already been subject to, to, to threats and stuff. So it it just it just kind of seemed to play into to Trump's narrative, right? I mean, Terry, what do you think? No, I think that that's right. I think that he's he's going to be able to raise a lot of money off of this. He's he's you know it's I I don't know. I can't speak to to whether it's a weak case or a strong case. I know that a lot is now on the line for Fonnie Willis with with whenever you know whenever they decide to to issue that grand jury report, which again isn't anything except for really a series of recommendations for another grand jury to eventually in, indict, but. Uh, it's, I mean, I, I did not, I was not glued to the coverage, honestly, because I'm kind of jaded about Trump at this point. And I just think that he'll probably get away with whatever it was. And, you know, true to what he normally does, you know, other people will, if any time needs to be served, other people will take care of that. Other people will serve their time. Will, I, will serve any time that he probably should be serving. I was glued to it. I couldn't get enough. There was that New York City police officer, the lady cop, who was like the camera was on her. Mm-hmm. She looked good. She had her makeup on. She was pretty. I loved seeing him doing that slow walk. But, you know, it seems like all our eyes are on Fonnie Willis. What, what's taking so long with that? Let's go back to New York. Uh, you know, I think stronger allegations could be what Trump did in response to the indictment, mm-hmm. right, in mm-hmm. terms of the the clear threat that he made against Bragg or, you know, kind of... Right. In, oh, and the judge and the daughter. Yeah, that's... Yeah, that is, that's real. Mm-hmm. Th- that, I would much rather have somebody prosecute that case than, oh, well, you know, he, as we always know, he puts all this fraudulent stuff in these business documents and then we're going to draw a line to Stormy Daniels. That, that doesn't... That doesn't make sense to me, but I'll tell you what, when, when you're out in public trying to incite violence and, and, and really making threats against um, a sitting prosecutor, um, that, that has a lot more to it. Yeah. Well, there are a couple of things going on. I mean, between you got the D.C. case, you got uh, E. Jean, you got, uh, there's, um, of course, the Fulton County one. And I want to go back to that question. Jen, you you're like, you were on the front lines of that. What is taking so long? Well, they were having a new grand jury seated, I think the first week of May, maybe the second week of May. And my my belief is she's probably waiting for this new grand jury to get seated. Um, and then they'll present the case there. Because what people don't realize is that the special grand jury, all their role was was to help facilitate the process. Right. They were help, They were there to investigate um, and offer kind of recommendations based on what they saw and heard, which, of course, um, the district attorney, Willis, can, she can reject all of it. She can adopt all of it. She can do halvesies, whatever she wants to do. Um, but ultimately, she and her team are going to have to go to another grand jury. And again, the new grand juries get seated the first couple of weeks of May, um, present the case to them, which should only take two to three days. And then that grand jury will be the one that actually issues an indictment. Right. And my guess is that until that indictment comes out, that the prior special grand jury's recommendations won't come out. So I think you're going to see something happen um, 
before June 1. At least that's uh, that's where my money is. All right. Okay. Ooh, I can't. That's crazy. That, yeah. That's crazy. And, the, and I mean, lawsuits. With all these, between Clarence Thomas, all these Trump crimes and lawsuits, um, and the Dominion lawsuit, I'm like, I'm like, that's crazy. I'm right? like, maybe I should go to back to law school. <laughs> Gosh, it's like, because like, you're, you're basically getting an education. It's like, know. you know, we, we've seen our friend, um, Professor um, Christ talk about, you know, what it means to be teaching constitutional law um, in today's world where every day, like there is almost a constitutional crisis, right? right? It's like. Oh, okay. Well, we thought this was settled, or we thought that this was a norm. Guess not. You know, um, that that's kind of hard. And there aren't that many constitutional lawyers. Like there aren't that many lawyers who sort of pursue constitutional law as they're as they're no, calling an area of expertise. So right. The whole thing is the Constitution's been around for <laughs> what? How many years? Right. There hasn't really been a lot of juggling around it. And then all the and we haven't had many constitutional crises. And then you know. Inner, you know, stage left Trump, and and all of a sudden, if you're a constitutional lawyer, man, you are you're living your best life right now. Seriously, it's so true. And now being a First Amendment lawyer, you know, because as you know, I'm a talent booker, and I get all these requests, like shows that are looking for people, and I can't tell you how many requests I've had people looking for First Amendment lawyers. And uh, Jen has said this to me, Seidler, like I've asked a question about First Amendment. She's you, you've been like. That's a very specific kind yeah. of thing um, that if you're not that, people don't want to comment on that because this is such a big case. I know a guy you might want to call. Oh, good. Okay. Right, though? But right, though, Jen, it's First Amendment's, like, intense. Yeah, well, and it's also, it's so dependent on the facts, right? Like, who said it? When did they say it? You know, because we do have a different, like, a different rule, I'll say, or, or precedent for news media, um, for elected officials, for public figures, versus if it's just two neighbors yelling at each other. Sure, sure, or, sure. you know, a neighbor or somebody getting online and, you know, going after, um, you know, the ex-wife, whatever it is, right? Um, those are easier because you don't have any kind of heightened, you know, um, kind of rule that you have to follow. But when you're talking about news media, it's a very, very different thing. That's why it's so incredible about the Dominion case, right? Because normally, you know, going after Fox, you would really have a really high bar. I mean, there's the New York Times versus Sullivan case. And, um, but man, they've got the evidence to show that not only did they know what they were saying was not true, but they blew past it intentionally because really it was about viewers and money. Um, that's a damn good case. And that judge uh, has also like, he's gotten like, they had, uh, there's like the Fox lawyers haven't been forthcoming with all the information. So they've sort of pissed off the judge. You don't want to do that. That's uh, a bad plan. Um, anyway, well, that's going to be one to watch. That's going to be so, it's, it's kind of, I mean, it's so crazy on so many levels, but we'll, we'll talk about that with the coming weeks. Um, I, cause I do want to get to 
the Tennessee three and what happened in Tennessee. That was something that we all watched and we're still watching. And for those of you, I'm sure I know everybody listening saw what happened with the Justins and, um, you know, the three representatives there in Tennessee. Uh, what did you all uh, make of that? I'll start with you, Terry, because you got a nice hit in the, in the, uh, in the jolt in the AJC yeah. about that. Thank you. Yeah, it's, it that was it was stunning to see that happen and it it was stunning to watch the interactions between the republicans who were trying to make this case that these three lawmakers should be ousted and seeing how, how poorly they did it, 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 as as again as political strategy it was really knuckleheaded of them to pursue this i mean they what what they what they accomplished was giving three very intelligent, very, very experienced, very pe- people who were prepared to have a national platform, they handed it to them on a silver platter. And they, they, they frankly made themselves look like a bunch of, uh, of just retaliation. Again, just, just, it, it was, it was, it, they were playing checkers and it was a really dumb thing for them to do. The first thing I thought, and this is what a lot of people asked me about when I got contacted by my friends in other states and by you know, reporters here locally, I was like, I don't think that, that would not happen in the Georgia House. It would, I don't think it would happen in, well, first of all, could it happen? Yes. Our rules do allow for that. Would it happen? No. And it wouldn't happen for a couple of reasons. Number one, the Republicans don't have that kind of supermajority in Georgia that they have in, in, in Tennessee that lets them do that. Uh, other states have those kinds of supermajorities also. We don't, the Republicans don't have that in Georgia. Number two, the leadership is so is so different. There is a different kind of, and I was on a panel yesterday talking to a group of folks with, it was myself, another uh, Democratic senator, and two uh, two Republican representatives. And we all agreed, we're like, no, that wouldn't happen in Georgia. And it's, and it's not just because they couldn't because they don't have a supermajority. It wouldn't happen because our leadership would never allow that. Speaker John Burns would not allow that. Late Speaker Ralston, never. I mean, my, would you maybe have had some a, a punishment or a little bit of retribution? Probably would anyone have even known about it in the public eye? Absolutely not. Uh, there are, and honestly, I think there are, there are, one of the examples that comes up is when we were debating the heartbeat bill on the floor of the House and two Democratic members, you know, were basically trying to, to filibuster, which is something that we had rules against that. Our rules don't allow that. There are time limits. It was not Republicans who took them out of the well. It was it was it was it was a Democrat. It was actually state the dean of the house. It was state representative, soon to be ambassador Calvin Smyre, who who went to the well and said, "It's you know I don't know what he said. I wasn't you know I didn't hear it, but but he you know helped walk them away from the well and helped really prevent anything that the you know, that that could have happened, and it really mitigated whatever consequences there might have been. Even then, could the Republicans have said, "Oh, we want to try to expel these members"? Yes, in Georgia they could do that. That conversation never, ever happened. I don't think that would ever happen in Georgia. What Tennessee did, it, it really showed that they are not thinking about their districts. They're not thinking about the voices that they were hearing from their districts. It, there was almost this sort of gleeful level. It, they, they almost did it with glee because they could, and that's bad politics, and I don't think it's going to serve them well. What's interesting is I think the person who sort of came out, the Republican in Tennessee who's come out of this looking a little bit better is the governor because he was like, oh no, you guys, I'm going to do this executive order. We're going to have some red flag laws here. We're going to think, you know, rethink how we approach our gun laws in Tennessee because that's what people want in Tennessee. And you've got these Republican lawmakers in the Tennessee House who 
were just doing something because they could. And it was, it came off being petty. It came off making them look like they didn't care at all about any of the voices of the people in their districts who were saying, look, we, we don't think people should be able to have these weapons of war. And we certainly don't think they should be able to have them without a permit. And we certainly don't think anybody should be able to buy one and bring them anywhere they want. And they ignored that and instead really just had their little, you know, they got sort of got the rocks off expelling these members. And it was a terror. It was terrible. It was terrible. And the members are all back both of them, they didn't expel the white woman who's 60 years old. And I love her because she... Gloria Johnson. Gloria Johnson. And when, when you know, the journalist's like, why do you think it is? They didn't expel you. She's like, why do you think? I'm an old white lady. <laughs> right, right. Jen, what did you make of the whole thing? I think it was just testosterone poisoning. I yeah. mean, I think it was all ego. I think they were like all hopped up. It's like, how dare you um, get in my face? How dare you, you know... I've seen it happen in the Georgia Senate. And while Terry is correct that they don't have the numbers to do it, I can tell you that there are people in the Georgia Senate who absolutely would have done the same thing for the same reasons. Um, and really, it's all about control. And, and let's call it what it is. It, it's, it's, it's racism and, you know, and it's smacks of misogyny as well. So, you know, I, I think, I just think it just shows you that, We've got some real issues and, um, you know, I don't think decorum is, is at the top of that list. It was really fascinating to watch because for me coming at it from like a public relations and media standpoint, it was like this little thing that they did that they thought they were going to show these these lawmakers a lesson, you know? Oh, yeah. And, and I keep hearing that, you know, Justin Pearson from Memphis, when he was sworn in wearing a dashiki, um, they were very upset about that. It was like, Oh, no, they were, because that's against the rules. But for him, that's his like formal wear. And, and, and so this, this kind of thing just gave, it's already, here it is. It's like, oh, but we, it's more than a week and we're still talking about it. So it's like over a week and they call that earned media where it's just like, exactly. so it's like, and those photos don't lie. I mean, the photos, there's a photo of, of Representative Jones, like preaching basically. And the speaker of the house is behind him with his arms crossed, like with a grumpy face. No, he looks petulant. He looks like a petulant <laughs> child who didn't get his way. And it's just, and, and, let's, he didn't. and let's not forget, I mean, these, these, these lawmakers were fighting just to do something when, you know, three nine-year-olds and three adults were gunned down at a school. I mean, this is a crazy time we're living in. And I think, um, it's just, it's just, ugh, it's just all so gross. Anyway, well, um, they're going to be, and they're superstars now. They're getting booked on all the Sunday shows. And, but I don't think those Tennessee people are going to change at all. I mean, they're mad at Governor Lee now for signing that executive order. They don't, they don't like that at all. They don't. Look, it, it, yeah. It's just coming to a head. Yeah. I mean, you know, until folks, until folks really start being held accountable for their behavior, Right. And for acting like that. Um, and I mean, the Republicans in Tennessee, mm-hmm. it, it, it will continue. And, and that's the problem. There has been no accountability. There's nobody has had to actually stand up and say, OK, you know, I, I did something wrong. And now, you know, this is this is what's going to happen as a consequence of it. And until that starts happening, and it needs to happen at the top in terms of the former president. Um, I think we're going to continue um, to see this because 
it, it really has gone unchecked for so long that, you know, the response, like y'all have seen, kind of this petulant response from them, they can't even believe that, that people, you know, are reacting to them in a negative way because how dare you, you know, we can do what we want. So, you know, well, and, we and, all just need to take a big breath, but we, we definitely need to elect other people. Yeah, yes. well, those guys, they're in, they're in an echo chamber of their own making. Right. right. They're in an echo chamber of their own making. They, they, they're, you know, they, they are surrounding themselves with folks who have a like mind, but that like mind is not something that is reflective of the populace. I mean, I had, you know, a, a lobby I, this year during session. I was late and it was late in the session. I was talking to a lobbyist about a, a you know, a member who, left recently who had been pretty powerful, but they left and, and the person, the lobbyist was like, well, you know, they just got so tired of, you know, how, how crazy things have gotten on the far right. And I said, I was like, oh my God, I made this monster out of spare discarded body parts and now it's attacking me. Oh my God, this is so hard. No, like what did they think was going to happen? First of all, like, this is what you're going to get. This is when you, what you're going to get when these districts in Tennessee and in Georgia and everywhere else are gerrymandered within an inch of their life. So you're not going to have any competitive primaries. And in fact, the concern is not the Democrat you may be running against, but the Republican from the far right who's going to be primarying you. That's who they're scared of. All of their policy decisions are guided by that fear, right? They're motivated by fear. They're motivated by the fear of losing their power. They're motivated by, you know, this echo chamber that they're in. And it is, it's not going to serve them well in the long term. They're going to have a lot of natural attrition in their party, by which I mean a lot of their base is just going to die and of old age, and a lot of the younger folks are not buying what they're selling. They're not going to fall into that. And and the other, and I'm, when we talk about Georgia, I talked a lot about the Georgia House. Your leadership sets the tone. Notice I didn't say anything about the Senate. That could absolutely 100% happen in the Senate. And if Less on the floor, but the, the the word that I kept using this year to describe what I was seeing out of the Georgia Senate, particularly in committees, the way that a lot of the the you know the majority of the Republican members were conducting themselves, the only word that I could think of was feral. It was as if the Senate had gone feral. The way they were behaving in their committees, the way they were speaking in their committees, the way they were speaking to members of the public who came to testify, the way they were speaking to their colleagues who didn't agree with them. There was, I mean, talk about a lack of decorum. They really were acting like a bunch of, it was It was like, you know, day 12 on the island in Lord of the Flies. Like they hadn't quite started eating their own yet, but it was coming, but they sure were just, they, they lost all sense of civility. I, I felt like what I, the Georgia Senate is in a very interesting place right now. And I, I, I could see that happening in the Senate, definitely. All right, well, we're going to keep our eye on all that. Lots of news, lots of stuff. And, you know, before we t get to what we're raving about this week, uh, just some quick thoughts on Atlanta not getting the Democratic National Convention. Jen, your thoughts? Well, it was interesting. Richard Belcher had a funny tweet yesterday where he's like, people are surprised, Democrats are surprised. It's like we basically have open carry uh, it's a right-to-work state, anti-union, you know, everything's um, controlled by Republicans. Oh, yeah, and we'll probably be in the middle of a domestic terrorism treason trial as well. I wonder why um, Georgia was passed over. But I think the real reason is because of Governor Pritzker, who's basically um, threw money at it. And I, I think he's basically going to foot 
a significant amount of the bill um, for the National Convention in Chicago. And that is something that we absolutely, um, we could not compete with. A check is a check. A check. No, I agree. I agree completely. I mean, you know, Chicago is, is a, it's a beautiful town. It's a hell of a town. Uh, but yeah, and it's almost, it's like not the Atlanta way to sort of be like, well, I'll, you know, to bankroll, to pot, you know, to pull money out of our own pockets to do this. Right. You know, that's not sort of how we attract people here is by, you know, saying, well, I'll give you all this money. But, you know, good for Chicago. They'll, you know, I hope they do a great job. I hope the weather's wonderful. And, and, and I do, I recommend actually following Richard Belcher on Twitter since he retired. He's, he's really, he's great. He's really he's, candid. Uh, I love it. I've always liked Richard, but he's his Twitter way. now. Oh my God. He's, he's, his Twitter now is just absolutely fantastic. Highly recommend. Okay. Um, all right. Well, let's talk about what we're raving about this week. And I'll go first because I have a feeling that the two of you haven't thought of it yet. So it'll give you a minute to really think of it. Um, I'm raving about the Brooke Shields documentary on Hulu called Pretty Baby. I, of course, I'm the 80s generation of, I grew up watching Brooke Shields and I thought this was so well done. I really learned a lot. It was great throwing back to those movies that I watched as a teenager, like Blue Lagoon and Endless Love and... I think she's terrific, and I think it's very, very eye-opening. Uh, you know, there's a lot of talk about how she was sexualized as a young girl and a teenager, and what the documentary, and this isn't a spoiler, like, really points out, like, they were so mad at her, but, like, why weren't they mad at the filmmakers? Why were they were mad at her mother? Um, so it was just, it's really, and it's just really interesting how it relates to her own daughters and everything that she's done in her career from you know, re- constantly reinventing herself to also being a spokesperson for postpartum depression, which no celebrity had talked about. And so I highly recommend that. That's my rave. Uh, who wants to go first on the next rave? I've, I've got one. Okay. Yeah, one is a book that I've already recommended to you, and that is, uh, that book is I Have Some Questions for You by Rebecca Mackay. I love any book set in the 90s, but this book also has a whole thing about podcasts, true crime podcasts specifically. Um, it's a great book. Highly recommend. And I also want to recommend a an Instagram account that was came out of tragedy. It, it is it, it after the Covenant school shooting in Nashville, a group of women in Buckhead. This actually the Instagram to follow is Buckhead Moms for Change. It's Buckhead Moms Ooh, for Change. I love it. This is a a bipartisan group and it's a lot of women who candidly had not, you know, had not been that interested in politics previous, you know, until recent years. And it, now they're, they, they've, hit their, they, they, they've hit that wall. They've hit that point. And they're like, enough is enough is enough. And why aren't, and it's the question I get every, because I, 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 I know a lot of them socially. I'm like, like, why isn't the legislature doing anything? I'm like, you know what? That's a good question. And it's something we've, you know, why isn't the legislature having, you know, we're having discussions about bills like the one, you know, Jen had with, with you know, abusers being able to get access to guns? Why aren't we having an actual vote on Representative Al's bill about safe storage? Why aren't we doing these things? And we're not doing them because the Republican majority has no desire to have those conversations. And this is a group, I think you can really get a lot of change, just like what happened in Tennessee with, with Governor, you know, with the, the governor signing those executive orders. When you start hearing from constituencies who aren't normally engaged 
When you start hearing from folks who aren't the usual suspects, there is a lot of power in that. There is a lot of power in that when people who aren't normally the ones speaking up, they're not normally the ones calling the representatives. When that starts, that's when you can see some change because people are like, wait, wait a minute, who, who are you? You're not, yeah, you're not the people I'm normally hearing from. That's powerful. And so I'm very excited to see this group. They already have 1,300 followers. They've only that been around for like two weeks. It. Yeah, it's a, it's a great group. And I want to do anything I can to help amplify them because it's, they, I think that they have a lot, of, a lot of potential to be a voice to their own community of folks who, again, have, oh, I don't want to get involved with politics. That's not my thing, you know, but, and now they're like, wait, this is my kids. Yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, okay, that's my Jen, recommendation. what are you raving about? Well, so that's a little simpler. Two things, soup. I love soup, I have to tell y'all. And uh, <laughs> I've, been, I've been making a lot of that of late. Very simple, very straightforward. And uh, I'll invite y'all over one day. The secondary thing is, is Instagram-ish, but not as compelling as Terry, which just shows you where my head is. Um, one of the mothers of, of one of Lawton's best friends who just committed to um, GW in DC, um, oh. George Washington. She posted that um, she had one child that had just committed to uh, GW, and the other one is trying to win a mullet contest. She said, "That's what you call balance, folks." And I was like, <laughs> "Good for her." So that's that's what I'm raving about. People who don't take themselves too seriously. And that that righteous mullet is an HD42 constituent. Okay. That would- <laughs> so, um, and wrapping up here, just I did want to give you a heads up that we are scheduled next week to have a very special guest on the show with the three of us, and we're going to be doing a remote broadcast um, or a remote taping, I should say, recording, um, and talking deeply uh, scheduled about UFOs. And so... Um, that's going to be really. Oh, exciting. I just, I just can't wait. I mean, <laughs> that sounds awesome. I'm very yeah, excited. I'm excited too. So stay tuned for that. Thanks, Christina Laringer, for always doing such a great job for producing the Voter Podcast. And thank you for being patient with us uh, with our hiatus. Listen, if you wouldn't mind rating and reviewing us on the uh, podcast and telling all your friends, we have so much fun doing Voter Podcast, and we appreciate you listening. Thanks so much, and we will talk to you next time. 